You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I hope I never have to do an entire show in binary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Engel, and I like covering the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. This time out, we're going to see a bit of all those characters, Kyle Rayner specifically in two books, the first one being Green Lantern 131, where... Kyle takes on the Manhunter robots who try to assimilate him all Borg style and use his ring for themselves. Chances are it doesn't work out very well. Plus, we're also taking a look at the final chapter of the Green Lantern vs. Aliens story in Green Lantern vs. Aliens of the War, where Kyle has to make the decision whether or not he should kill all the aliens, which is the right thing to do, or to let them go and, you know, be on his way. We'll also see how that works out as well. But and like I've had on the past couple episodes, covering the Green Lantern vs. Alien books, I've recruited a couple of podcast. well, this time I've recruited one podcaster in general who's very knowledgeable about horror films and I'm very much a fan of the Alien films as well. He is the host of Earth Destruction Directive over at the Two True Freaks Network, and he's also my very good friend and co-host over at the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror at Two True Freaks as well. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege and my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Mr. Luke Jackson. How's it going, Luke? I am doing great. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing really wonderful. I'm looking forward to getting this alien story. Um, you got a chance to read through uh, all uh, four of the books, have you? Yeah, pretty much. Although, uh, you know, it's it's an oddball story and it's an oddball ending, but, you know, it, it's... I think it ties in with your standard type of uh, superhero versus aliens crossover book, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree. It does have the same sort of feel as a lot of the uh, uh, aliens or, or the aliens versus uh, crossovers that we had with DC. But, yeah, uh, we'll get into it. But I enjoyed it. So, 
what I like I always do here. I'm going to go ahead and we're going to take a little break, play a couple of podcast promos, probably one from Mr. Jack and Eddie's show. And once we get back, we'll start in on our coverage of Green Lantern number 131. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email, and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah, sorry, sorry. I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow! Put Cap's shield there. (laughs) Anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's it's on that book, and I can't move it. Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! Watch out for the repulsor! Ow! Oh! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die. They just get reassembled and sent to another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover and who might stop by. So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree Skrull War, and... Oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? <sighs> hey, wait a minute. This is the book of the Vashanti. <sighs> Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which, at this very moment, still prevails and could, at any time, lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? 
If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we are back. So, once again, skipping emails. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. Keep those letters coming. I will get to those eventually. I really appreciate you writing in, everyone. We're going to go ahead and jump into Green Lantern number 131. This one was cover dated December 2000 and released on October 4, 2000, <laughs> with a cover price of $2.25 US and $3.50 Canada. The title was Outswimming the Undertow. The writer was Judd Winnick. Penciler was Daryl Banks. Inker was Jordy Ensign. The colorist was Rob Schwager. Letter was Chris Eliopoulos. The associate editor was Michael Wright. And the editor was Bob Schreck. After a quick bit of Green Lantern history covering the Guardians, the Manhunters, the Corps, Sinestro and the Cordians, the story opens properly with Antimatter Universe Gary Oldman from Lost in Space being handed <laughs> Take a look at him, that's Gary Yeah, Oldman, that's who he is. Being handed the newly created Yellow Power Ring. His fellow jeweler asks who he wants to wield such a weapon of power, and the antimatter Gary Oldman says it should be someone who goes beyond just being evil. This ring bearer must be a chaos ring. But back with our main story, we see the main Manhunter robot preparing to test out the Green Lantern ring via the cybernetic link it has with the current Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner. Gloating that he now controls the ultimate power in the universe, the Manhunter is shocked when he, when he unleashes the Emerald Energy, and all he gets is a series of numbers. You see, the ring was bent to work on willpower, something the Manhunters never had. However, Kyle Rayner has willpower to spare. And since the androids have linked him to the ring via their mechanical manipulations, Kyle uses the ring remotely to wipe out all the Manhunters and return the ring to his own hands. After tons of consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, are dealt out, Kyle heads back to Earth after blowing up the Manhunter space station real good. Five days later on Earth, Kyle, John, and Guy sit outside a coffee shop discussing Kyle's kidnapping. Telling the former Lanterns that he is given a clean bill of health by Star Labs, Kyle wonders how the Manhunters were able to find him. John says that there could have been plenty of ways, but Guy, Winnick has reverted back to his old JLI ways, is interested in the members of the modeling agencies who are passing in front of him. Nice. <laughs> Ignoring Guy's boorishness, John asks about Kyle's assistant Terry and how much he knows about his secret identity since if it weren't for John covering up for him, Kyle would have a lot of splaining to do. Kyle says he'll be more careful in the future in dealing with the 16-year-old Terry. Cut to an early morning talk show where the newest artist for Feast magazine, Kyle Rayner, is being questioned about how he got the job. The interview is filled with snark and sass, something that upon viewing the tape of it, Kyle doesn't feel too comfortable with. But Terry Berg, who is watching the replay with him, begs to differ and thinks that the interview will be just the thing to up Kyle's Q rating. But the Mutual Admiration Society is broken up by a ring of the phone. Picking it up, Kyle is surprised to hear the call is from Jenny Lynn Hayden, who I assume must be calling to tell Kyle about her breast augmentation surgery. <laughs> 
But the actual reason isn't quite that pleasant, as one of Kyle's deadliest foes, Fatality, has returned and is now wielding a yellow Gordian power ring. And there we go with issue 131. Now, uh, I know that I, I think you've mentioned that you really weren't reading all that much Green Lantern at this time. Uh, what what are your thoughts about this book, uh, kind of reading into the vacuum a little here? Well, you know what's funny is that I, I wasn't reading a lot of Green Lantern, but not this was this was the end of 2000. And not too long after this, I was reading Judd Winnick's uh, Outsiders. Mm-hmm. And this book, you can see where a lot of the stuff that he would, as far as his writing style and his pacing and his approach to doing character development, where it came from. Because it's very similar, what he does here is very similar to what he does on Outsiders. And and some of the pacing especially is very Outsiders-esque, despite it not being a team book, just being a, a solo book. But um, it's, you know, it's, it's just inter- it's odd, because it's almost like, you know now, the attitude now is that there's, you can't buy a one-and-done story, everything's part written for the trade. In 2000, that wasn't the case, but that's what this reads like, almost, you know? Mm-hmm. It does It does have a feel that there's something more going on with it. There's a bit more story. It is kind of a... It's not necessarily the whole written-for-the-trade thing, even though you had the continuing story over the past couple episodes of Kyle dealing with the Manhunters. But there is, yes, yes, definitely a different shift with Judd Winnick coming in and writing a book than from how Ron Mars was. It's I, I felt it to be a bit more, I hate to use the word hip and trendy, but it has more of a youthful feel of it. Yeah. Kyle's voice is still good, but there's just a little different pacing than I'm than we've seen in the pre- previous issues. It's not that it's bad, it's actually pretty much has been pretty good. And a lot of the characterizations are good. It's just the language is a bit more upbeat. Uh, the characters' uh, arcs are a little bit more trendy. So it, it's a nice change. And I, I'm actually kind of enjoying it here. Yeah, and one of the things also specifically about the pacing, something that I noticed a lot on Outsiders is that even though DC would collect the books, you know, six issues at a clip, they might have a, the, the main story, quote-unquote, might end after four issues and then they transition into a new story for a couple issues and a lot of times it might happen in the middle of that issue they might end like it does here the manhunter threat ends in the middle of the issue and then we move into this character piece on kyle because it uh, and i've heard Winnick say this is like well the story needs as much space as it needs mm-hmm. and and it doesn't make you know he's and he's here i give him credit at least he's not padding out this fight with the manhunters to feature length when it doesn't need to be you know it's the right length because i mean it's over by page 14 and then we get a good uh what eight pages or nine pages of uh kyle and guy and john and every time i come on it seems that all three of them are there somehow <laughs> uh you know it's, them talking and it's it's good insight into all of them the way that winnick is going to present them mm-hmm. you know? yeah i'm like i said in the synopsis i'm i've heard uh, not the best things about Winnick's characterization of Guy, but you know I'll have to see how it goes. Uh, Thomas DJ has kind of warned me that Winnick kind of reverts Guy back to the sort of self-interested. You know, he 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 takes away from what had been built upon Guy 
with the Bowsmith one. So yeah. that may be the only negative thing I have to say about Winning so far. Yeah. Um, if you want to go into specific notes, uh, do you want to start with the cover? Yeah, the the cover. I actually like the cover quite a bit. Um, I like the uh, the negative space of the binary code in the back. Mm-hmm. I really like that. I mean, this is a cover that that you know I I, I talk a lot about neg you know white negative white you know negative space white space black space that kind of thing that it draws your eye to it because it's so it's striking with the black and white. So if you were just scanning over, the black and white background would catch your eye, and then you'd look at the rest of the cover and say, "Oh wow, Kyle's getting his ass handed to him by a manhunter." Mm-hmm. And not only a manhunter, but a manhunter who seems to be wielding a Green Lantern ring. You know, yeah. it's, it's not Kyle with a ring on. So that's that's even if you are knowledgeable about both the manhunters and the character of Green Lantern, this is going to kind of pique your interest as well. Uh, I agree. I like the uh, I like the negative space with the the binary code, but I'm looking at it. It's just a repetition of one one and zero. One zero. Yeah. So I can only assume that. The background is just a giant, long, protracted scream of ah. Because <laughs> uh, uh, isn't one zero A or is it zero one is A? I can't. Uh, it depends if you're big Endian or little Endian. Okay, well there you go. <laughs> <laughs> For the computer science majors out there who might remember big Endian and little Endian. Uh, yeah, but it, I guess that makes sense. Kyle would be screaming. I like Kyle. Also appears to be wearing his. Uh, Fractal armor from uh, the Total Justice toy line. <laughs> the half well, mask. I like that. He looks kind of like the Phantom of the Opera if the Phantom of the Opera was a superhero. <laughs> well, you know, I, that's that's not too surprising. You know, you, this was about the time where uh, the toy lines were getting pretty popular. So, yeah, I could imagine them selling this kind of, you know, half, <laughs> you know, broken armored Kyle. That'd work. Yeah. <laughs> um, moving into the book. I like the recap at the beginning. It's it's a very simple one-page recap of the history of the Green Lantern universe. Although, at the bottom of the page, I don't like the way they've redone the Cordians. The Cordians just look off. The, the guy way- with the mustache isn't helping matters. Yeah, he looks he looks like he should be, uh, you know, he's looking for the porn shoot. And <laughs> he just uh, happened to come across this, uh-oh, uh, maybe this isn't the uh, the female porn shoot that I'm going to have yeah. to be doing soon. Yeah, and, it, and Banks, he draw. I mean, the, I know the Weaponers of Cord have the big heads, the the big helmets, but they look a little too much like Thanagarian honor wings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? so it's like the Cordians are are not the Thanagarians. Thanagarians did some bad stuff, especially in this era, but they're not quite as bad as the Cordians, I don't think. No, well, the Cordians necessarily had their society based purely on evil, so it's just a weird design, and the fact that they're shaded green. Throughout the rest of the show, throughout the rest of the book, is just it's off. I, I don't know if you know the colorist just didn't know, didn't have references. I will admit, however, I do like having the accordions come back because in the in the Ron Mars run, one of the things I think hindered it was the fact that Kyle didn't have really the greatest enemy. Yeah, near the end of it, you know, with uh, Fatality and the Effigy Corps. These characters, he, his enemies got a little better, but I think they kept, for whatever reason, they kept the Cordians and the Yellow Ring out of out of the story. And now I'm glad that they're kind of bringing it back. I think it, maybe if Winnick pitched this, good on Winnick, but you know, bring the Cordians and the Yellow Ring back, I think is a good thing here. Yeah, and I think so too. I think part of that might have been uh, for the you know the idea that Kyle was the last ring bearer. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like we have now where everybody and their brother has a ring mm-hmm. of, of various rainbow colors. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now it's not only the, the Green Lanterns, but it's all the myriad numbers of yeah. and all that. So, so introducing another ring bearer, even, you know, that, that even to me was like somebody like Effigy, who was like a ring bearer, even though he wasn't, you know, made him a, a legitimate threat to Kyle and, and a unique threat to him because, you know, much like Sinestro was to Hal back in the Silver Age, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of rings. So they, the prolifer, because they weren't pr- proliferated. The threat became that much more when they brought him in. So bringing in the weaponers of Cord says, well, this is what these people do. They make yellow, lan- yellow rings. You know, mm-hmm. we've, we've seen that. And, uh, and, and so this, I thought this little prologue was neat. See, uh, going in, I thought, oh, is this tying to the Manhunters somehow? So the swerve that we get with the, with the weaponers who they pick to bear their new weapon to me was, I thought was really good because it's not foreshadowed at all. Mm-hmm. from either this, either the little prologue or the cover or anything else. Well, and I think this is another thing. The the prologue thing is something that we've seen in the Judd Winnick run particularly. He's been starting out a lot of the books with these little prologue sequences, which do make, you know, the book a bit more cinematic. It gives it a, that sort of James Bond opening sequence type feel. You know, uh, not, not specifically if there was a big action piece and something that, you know, tangentially relates to the book. But there's these little prologue things. That's a that's a nice change of pace from the regular books, which is just you know one entire story. So I I I've liked the what Winnick has done so far in the books here. Um, my next note comes on page five where the Manhunter. Do you have anything for that? The only one I've got is on page four when we see Kyle laid out in the table. Uh, he looks like he could be from a '90s uh, made-for-TV science fiction movie, mm-hmm. or captain victory from the running man <laughs> i was going to say that i think i talked about this in the last episode with hero he had the same sort of get up on except uh you saw a more uh shot of him from the front yeah and i thought he looked more like man at what man at arms from he-man man at arms yeah so with the I'm half helmet like i can yep. see that yeah but yeah that that is a that is a very 90s get up there uh, my next note was on page five where the manhunter tries to use the ring and all he gets are numbers. And this time it's not, it's not binary. There's twos and ones in it. And I hate to say it when I saw this, all I could think of was that Futurama episode. I think it was a head in the polls where Bender sells his, sells his body and Richard Nixon buys it up and Bender is having a dream. Yeah. And in the dream, he was like, Oh, it's all ones and zeros. And I could have swore I saw it too. <laughs> and Fry picks his head up and says, "Don't worry, Bender. There's no such thing as two. two. <laughs> oh no! I mean, my my note is binary is not ones and twos. Yes. Well, I mean, technically, it's a binary because it's only two numbers, but that's not binary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it could be really, really badly done hexadecimal. They just only got up to two they never went to the others or mm-hmm. octal if you want to get really technical <laughs> wow but uh you know base base eight again for the computer science uh jokes out there mm-hmm. uh and, and i like he's i don't know if he's surprised or if another manhunter goosed him well <laughs> he was Ooh! yeah he does have he, he does have that sort of it, again it's kind of back to that uh whole um blow up doll look that the yeah. uh that daryl banks is kind of fond of drawing unfortunately yeah. but yeah that's that's a uh, that's a surprised face. Yeah. <laughs> After that, I really don't have any specific notes. The pages eight through thirteen, we see Kyle taking on the Manhunters, and it's just basically a big fight scene. Yeah, um, 
it's my, a bit. My, go ahead. Go ahead. It's no, a go bit, ahead. Okay, it's a bit darker than Kyle than what we've seen, and even in you know the book that will be coming later, he's a bit more vicious. Um, granted, I guess you know he's okay with killing the Manhunters because technically they're robots and not right. life forms, but still, you know. He's he's getting pretty brutal with these things, but you know, different writers, different. Yeah, it's kind of the uh, kind of the Captain Clown mentality. I don't know if uh, you, you're familiar with the early days of Batman the animated series. One of the early Joker episodes has the Joker being assisted by a a a large robot named Captain Clown. I vaguely remember that. And Batman beats the living crap out of him. He beats him with a crowbar at one point. And, and they, they, and, and, uh, in the Cinefantastique double issue where they talk about Batman the Animated Series, they interviewed, I don't think it was Paul Dini, was one of the production guys, and they said one of the things we realized early on was that if we had a robot, we could do whatever we wanted to him and broadcast standards and practice didn't care because he was a robot. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I thought here. It's like, well, they're just robots. I can, I don't have to hold back here. Yeah. Is what I got. And I really like on the double page spread, which is page eight and nine, uh, that top panel. The way that the Green Lantern energy is shooting out of Kyle in um, uh, mostly straight lines with like 45 degree angles around it, mm -hmm. it looks like a green version of Darkseid's Omega effect. Yes, it does definitely have that Omega beams effect there with the beams yeah. sort of twisting and turning, not just falling direct paths. I like that there. Yeah. And then the uh, Kyle with the ripped um, portions of his uniform with his, his arms and his legs and stuff sticking out. It's like, I'm sure the female readers really appreciated the new look for Kyle in these mm -hmm. couple of days. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm, I'm the, the page after that, I guess page 10, that uh, middle panel where you've got the, yeah. uh, the up, uh, yeah, the crotch shot basically. So yeah, there you go, ladies. A little something for you. Hey, you know, the ladies love Kyle Rayner. They, they seem to. Yeah. Um, after that, my next note, uh, starts with the uh, interaction between, uh, John, Kyle and Guy and, the only, um, just one real quick. The yeah, only other ahead. note I have is on page 13 when he finishes the last Manhunter. He summons up a, a mech of some kind. Mm -hmm. a, a mecha, if you want to use the Japanese term. And I, I, this look, design looks really familiar. The first name that popped into my head was Pat Labor. And I looked up my Pat, the Pat Labor mech, and it's like, it's not quite like that. But, cause it's not a Veritech. It's not a, like a Macross style mech. It's not one of the super robots. It's not a Gundam style. So I, but that with the, the face with the small, uh, viewport in the front and then the, the big boxy shoulders, that looks really, really familiar to me for some reason. Yeah. I, I, I will admit that, that, that head is very specific with the sort of, uh, it looks sort of like a shuttlecraft coming down to the central port there as his head. It's really, it really is specific, and I know I've seen something like that before, but again, it's, you know, uh, akin to Kyle calling on his anime or manga type, uh, right, uh, appreciation to, uh, use for different types of constructs. But yeah, and I, uh, I didn't, I also noticed this at the uh, number of the, uh, yep. the mech is 187, which I guess is, uh, what, uh, the criminal code for murder or the police yep. code for murder. So the police code for murder. And any one of us who grew up, Hearing any type of gangster rap in the 90s knew that. So. Mm -hmm. 187. 187 on the undercover cop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but then we get the interaction between John and Kyle and Guy. And, oh. This is a dramatic, dramatic shift in tone. Mm -hmm. Literally from one page of 
Kyle blowing up a, sh- a, a space station full of uh, manhunters with the word blam in giant letters to three guys sitting outside of Warner's Cafe, which I thought was funny, mm-hmm. uh, drinking coffee. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, and I've, I've complained. Well, not really complained, but I've commented that I really like the fact that in this time period, Green Lantern could have these sort of decompressed stories where he'd be on Earth and he'd just be hanging out with Guy or hanging out with Jenny or hanging out with John. And, you know, I like this, but this is quite a dramatic, you know, sort of switch from one thing to the other. You know, I will admit on page 15, I'm still kind of iffy about how Winnick's going to depict Guy. If if he's going to be a jot goon again, I don't know how much I'm going to like it. And plus on that uh, on that last panel on page 15, did did Guy suddenly have a stroke? <laughs> because the left side of his face looks messed up. And I Kyle... had a stroke. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but look at but look at Kyle. Yeah. Kyle appreciates what Guy's doing for him. Uh-huh. Well, you know, and, uh, and, and and you know, again, I haven't read any further than this, so I'm not sure how Judd Winnick really handles Guy. But here, I was looking at this, like you know, Kyle just had this really bad thing go down, and Guy's like, "Hey, I know what'll cheer him up. We'll ogle some women." <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing more than to relieve, you know, a tragedy than boobies. Yeah. There you go. Folks. <laughs> um. Let's see, where's my next note? Page 17, we get more uh, conversation about Terry. Now, do you know uh, about the character of Terry Berg? No, I do not. Okay. Uh, When Judd Winnick came in in issue 129, he introduced Kyle getting a job at this magazine called Feast, which is, uh, I guess, kind of akin to Maxim. It's a... It's like a inter- men's magazine. It's, like a- it's an entertainment men's magazine. It does a lot of it's not like Playboy where there's nude photos in that, but it's, you know, the closest thing to what, what we play lads magazine. Yes. And uh, Kyle has been, uh, you know, uh, hired by this magazine to do a comic strip that runs in the back of the magazine every two weeks. So he's basically the. Magazine has assigned him this 16-year-old assistant named Terry Berg, who has come up to his house and helps set up a computer and make sure that he makes deadlines and all this. And he's just this little young 16-year-old character who's been introduced in the book. Later on in the series, you'll find out that Terry is gay. And there's a storyline, you know, eventually where he comes out to Kyle and, you know, they talk about that. And then later on in the series around issue 153 i think there is a very provocative issue where he's coming out of a bar with his boyfriend or or a nightclub with his boyfriend he kisses him and then this group of this group of thugs chase him down and beat him with an inch of his life and kyle has to deal with the you know he tracks down the characters uh it's uh, it's one of the few stories i actually went ahead and read because i wanted to know you know, what I was getting into. And it's, they're setting up his character here. And what's nice is in the first issue that Winnick did, he had a horrible, horrible, obnoxious, gay stereotype character in one of the people who worked for the magazine. I mean, he was like, you know, flaming, swishy, obnoxious. It was, it was uncomfortable to read. 
And the thing is, I think Thomas DJ and I talked about that. That character was put there to kind of distract from the fact that Terry would eventually be revealed to be gay. Yeah. It, it was a, it, basically they revealed him as just a kid who's enthusiastic about being with Kyle and being, uh, working this job, but there's no real definitive, uh, call to him saying that he's gay. So you're going to get to see this character develop who's a gay character or who, who's a character who's gay, but who isn't a gay character. If that right. Makes sense. And, and when it uses, not only uses, when it tends to have homosexual characters in a lot of his work, Again, going back to Outsiders, uh, you know, Grace Troy and Thunder mm-hmm. were, were not only uh, lesbians, but they were lovers, actually. In fact, uh, this led to a great bit when uh, Chuck Dixon took over the Outsiders and um, wrote, when he brought in Thunder and Grace, he had Batman choose Grace to be part of the team, but not Thunder. And they DC released a preview of Thunder confronting Batman about this, and I, I think DC pretty much started the rumor that Batman was going to say something about them being gay and not liking it because it was Chuck Dixon writing it. Mm -hmm. But then it turns out that Batman said, he was, well, I can't have you both out in the field at the same time because then you're worried about each other and not the mission. Mm -hmm. And it was, and it was total Batman no sell, you know? Yeah. Well, and that, (laughs) but that, but that makes it. And I think Chuck Dixon realizes that he wasn't going to go for the, Oh, Batman's a homophobe or anything. He's going to go, Batman realizes that these people are in a relationship, and if they're out there working together, if something happens, it could compromise you yeah. know them doing it. So that makes sense. But but again, it's knowing Winnick's connection with uh, Pedro Zamora. Mm-hmm. You know his that he is often uses his work as I, I I'm going to say soapbox, and I don't mean that in a negative connotation. I mean that you know in a in, with no connotation. But he uses it as a soapbox to address homophobia or AIDS, or other issues that impact the gay and lesbian community. And he features homosexual characters a lot. And, you know, that's that's his want. And I didn't know that about this character. That's interesting that, that he introduced a, like I said, a, like you said, an obnoxious stereotype to try and of de- de- deflect away from that. Mm-hmm. The thing about this whole sequence with the interview is that Judd Winnick, you know, was a cartoonist before he got into being known as a comic book writer. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm wondering if the the interview is kind of you know something that Winnick may have gone through, is something that yeah. you know he may may have been something that he had done. So yeah, I, I mean, this, this this reads almost like um like a Harvey Pekar or a Jim Valentino autobiographical comic. Mm-hmm. You know, I could see Valentino doing this like, oh man, I gave this interview and I was a jackass. You know, <laughs> so I I think there's a lot of autobiography in these couple of pages here with with Kyle standing in for. Uh, Winnick himself, and I, and I thought it rang true because of that, you know, the the smarmy TV personality. And then you see uh, Kyle on uh, page nineteen; he's actually covering his eyes and says, "I can't take it anymore." <laughs> Watching himself on TV. Well, especially you know uh, if he's if he was actually drinking or you know on the thing, because you know that's more of a Lindsay Lohan thing than yeah. you know, a Kyle Winner, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. But yeah, I can understand how he would be kind of embarrassed with. The, the sort of, but you know, again, New York City, you're working for a magazine that is kind of controversial and Maxim or, you know, a lads magazine. So any publicity is considered to be good publicity. Yeah. And is he wearing a Warriors bar pullover? Yes, he is. <laughs> Very you know, nice. Again, well, you know, one of those things that I would, if there was a market for those, I would buy one. Yeah. And I, and I like Terry's, uh, I'm guessing the ferrets must be a band that he likes. 
Yeah, I'm... The, and, and I like that it's a ringer shirt because it would totally be a ringer T-shirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it is. It is starting in the 2000s. Ringer shirts are all the rage. <laughs> um, my next note is on page 21. Oh yes, page 21. <laughs> uh, uh... I'm not sure if if uh, if if Jenny is um, like that episode of Friends where. Uh, Rachel goes out on a date with uh, her boyfriend while wearing lingerie because he showed up with her parents, with his parents. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she's meaning to go out wearing lingerie or if she's in the process of getting dressed and has to call Kyle right now. You know, I'm not sure why there's that much lace and why her breasts have suddenly gotten so big. Mm-hmm. It but is good. Good on her. <laughs> yeah. yeah congratulations. I mean, the disappointing thing is the art throughout the rest of this book is is decent, but there are parts where it gets a bit muddy this one panel where jenny is drawn is so amazing the detail yeah. that they've got put in the lace yeah. and the stitching of the fabric and the wrinkles in the fabric is just it's like uh, it's like daryl bags was just oh this is gonna be so good <laughs> i've gotta stop for a minute it's <laughs> it's almost disturbing but you know uh, it's yeah. nice to see that jenny's at least getting back into the story i yeah. think I think it's about time, and eventually she does come back a little bit more in the story. But then after that, we get the reveal that Fatality, who I think was a really good villain in her own right during the Kyle Rayner run, is back, and she's got a yellow power ring. And I think, yeah. I think that's this is something that I, the the book could have really used. You know, having Kyle go against a real ring wielder is a good choice. Effigy was was a nice substitute, but having some Kyle to go against ring to ring against someone i think it's going to be really enjoyable yeah fatality i love her disinterested look (laughs) because you know fatality you know uh, whatever i do what i want uh but yeah she she looks ready to she looks like she's gonna bring some pain i love that she's down at the pier i can only imagine that it's pier six (laughs) that she has wrecked up the place here but no fatality is is to me the most memorable of the villains from this entire volume you know the you know comparing to like heavy metal sonar and uh um, what was his name? Graven and yeah, some oh. of the others that were introduced. She stands out. And there's a reason why, you know, I talked about this with you at the time. Yes, she's a very 90s character with her, a high impact character with, you know, the, 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 the aggressive name and the aggressive attitude and the, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess you up, uh, you know, grit teeth and everything. She doesn't have enough. Well, she's got some pouches on her belt there. Um, but there's a reason why some of those characters stick around is because there's a, some of those types of characters can work if they have some good motivation, a good look, you know, a good gimmick. The one I always come back to is Venom. You know, mm-hmm. Venom is the kind of the poster child of what I call the, the in-your-face villain like that because that, you know, can, he worked much the same way that Fatality worked because sometimes you don't need a super complex villain. Sometimes you need someone that's going to bust up the place. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Fatality is making Fatality female and this statuesque uh, bruiser, I think, is great because it also plays against type for the type of villains that Green Lantern fights. You think of female Green Lantern villains, you think of Star Sapphire. Mm-hmm. You know, Star Sapphire is a lot of things. She's not a bruiser. No. You and, know? you know, the, she also has, you know, an interesting backstory in the fact that, you know, her home planet, Zanshi, was destroyed by John Stewart. So she's got a beef against a legitimate yeah. beef against the Green Lantern. So to see her get the ring, I think is going to be really interesting to see where this oh, yeah. goes. It's the high concept character. You know, the, the definition of a high concept story is one you can pitch in one sentence. Mm-hmm. 
Fatality's a high concept villain in that sense. It's like once vengeance on the Green Lanterns because her planet got destroyed because of them. It's like okay, there you go. Exactly. You know. Yeah, she. I'm, I'm looking. Oh, it should be interesting. When when it in again in my experience reading his stuff, sometimes he can handle the brawls like this really well, and sometimes he gets kind of he loses the plot a bit because he has too much quipping or you know. Mm-hmm. Whatever going on, I'd be interested to see how Kyle and uh, Fatality throw down in the in the next issue or so. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like I said, I this is the the area of the run that I'm kind of confused. Well, not confused, but I'm uh, not knowledgeable about. I haven't read ahead except for a few books, so you know, I, I'm reading this pretty much as it's new, and so far I've been really enjoying it. So I don't have any problems with Quinnick so far. I'm you know, I've heard negative things about him on a bunch of team books at times, but so far in this individual book where he's just covering Guy, or not Guy, Kyle, it's been really good. So, yeah. good stuff. I, like I said, I, I thought this was a good issue. The pacing thing brought me, like I said, brought me right back to previous Winnick stuff I've read, and I was on board with what he was doing, you know, because... You know, when I started reading this and Kyle immediately you know, broke out of the manhunt, I was like, oh man, is this going to be a 22-page fight? Yeah, that's gonna get that's gonna get a little boring in the middle, I think. But when it gave the the story the space it needed, and we got, I mean, it it, it jumps around a bit, but we get a lot of story here, mm-hmm. you know, because we get the setup with the Weaponers Accord, we get um, Kyle finishing up against the Manhunters, we get the uh, the character beats between uh, Guy and Kyle and John, we get the interview, we get Kyle with Terry, and then we get the cliffhanger. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot for your money for your 225 here, you know. Oh yeah. Also interesting, by 2000 comics were already 225. So mm-hmm. the jump to 299 a couple of years later doesn't seem that bad in retrospect, you know. Yeah, and going over this, I'm trying to remember. I think the price point at the beginning of the Green Lantern run, I want to say it was 150. Mm-hmm. So uh, there probably was a greater increase. It may have been even less than that. It may have been a dollar, but I can't remember. I don't have. Like, you know, I've got the books over to my side. I could go look. But, uh, yeah, the, the jump from 225 to 229 or 299, you know, isn't that significant over, you know, the course of, what, 10 years? Yeah. Well, I mean, 299 was, what, when I was in grad school by that point. So, like, 2005, 2006, so maybe five, six years. Yeah, that's not. Yeah. I mean, it's really not that bad. It's all relative, of course. The fact that it's two ninety nine, yeah, it's well, still a, it's still a bit much. But again, uh, well, you when, know, when we look at bronze and silver age comics, you know, running twenty five cents and twelve cents at times, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, man, nowadays yeah. that would be amazing. But yeah, you can't sustain that. But that's that's a that's an argument for an entirely different show, <laughs> which I am not going to get into. Me neither. You know me. I'm uh, I prefer to argue argue about things that are important, mm-hmm. like you know. Uh, you know, which Hawkman was in which issue of Justice League of America between the publishing of Crisis on Infinite Earths and Hawkworld. <laughs> really important, meaty stuff like that. I'm certain there are thousands <laughs> of people just begging to know which Hawkman it was. When I can, when I figure it out, I'll let you people know. All right. <laughs> well, if you're done here with the book, I'm done with it. Uh, yep. Ready to move on to the next one? Let's keep it rolling. Okay, we're going to go ahead and do a quick little break here. We'll plug a few more promos in here. And when we get back, we'll take a look at Green Lantern vs. Aliens number four. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. 
You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You are changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next you earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the Phantom Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or hold. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to the drain of all elemental life. So, speak Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com It started as an idea. A flicker. Now with a simple voice email to the Superman and the Bronze Age podcast, that flicker has become a flame. Now, Russell, you're ready to start a podcast. Yep, you're ready to go. Yes, start it, and then and then we can email you. Whoa. And Russell has been, you know, the most consistent emailer. I think it's time that he does start a show. DC Comics presents. You know, after Dave's done, and I mean, you're not covering every, every issue. So he could do all of them. I would highly recommend that, actually. That would be awesome. So there you go, Russell. Go for it. I can't wait to hear his reaction to this. this <laughs> well, boys, here's your response. The DC Comics Presents show, hosted by me, Russell Bragg. On each episode, I will cover one issue of DC Comics Presents in publishing order until I reach the end of the series. I will also be covering all four annuals. Plus, I will be doing a character spotlight on each of Superman's guest stars, and I will be going to the spinner rack to see what other comic books were available. Join me each episode of the DC Comics Presents show. Please go to the show's website at www.dccpshow.com for more information. That's D-C-C-P-S-H-O-W. And we're back. So let's go ahead and dive right into our second book this time out. It's Green Lantern versus Aliens number four. Had a cover date of December 2000, released on December 13, 2000. Had a cover price of $2.99 US and $4.50 Canada. The writer was Ron Mars. Penciler was Rick Leonardi. The inker was Mike Perkins. Colorist Dave Stewart. Letterer Dave, uh, sorry, letterer Steve Dutro, cover artist Dwayne Turner, designer Darcy Hackett, assistant editors Tim Evan Gore and Frank Berrios, editors Phil Lamar and Bob Schreck, 
publisher Mike Richardson, and special thanks to Debbie Olshin at Fox and Neela Weber at DC Comics. It's <sighs> <sighs> a lot of credits I just want to say, as I was looking over the credits, I thought it said letterer Steve Ditko, and I was like, what the? <laughs> yes. No, no offense to Steve Dutra, who does a fine job lettering, but that would have been something. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen a very Doctor Strange type lettering for that. Yeah. This would have been amazing. Uh, but going into the synopsis. As hordes of xenomorph drones maneuver the freshly laid eggs near the captured crew and former Green Lanterns, Cal Rayner attempts to pull his trap ring back to him to no avail. Saying that there's no more time to waste, Crow says that he needs to step up and get Kyle's ring back. Crow says that she'll create a distraction while Kyle makes a dash for his ring, but before they can implement this suicidal plan, Kyle gives Crow a kiss for luck. Awkward moment over with, the two spring into action with Crow blasting at the aliens while Kyle sprints for his ring. Dodging plasma fire, Kyle turns to see that the aliens have intercepted Crow and are tearing her apart. However, this isn't as fatal as we would be led to believe, as Crow is actually a Hyperdyne Systems Model 341B synthetic and not a flesh-and-blood woman that Kyle could possibly get to second base with. Swearing to keep his promise of saving the captives, Kyle dives for his ring, but gets intercepted by a, fresh, by a freshly hatched facehugger, which latches onto our hero. But in the nick of time, Kyle reaches his ring and rips the crab-like critter away from his throat. However, the facehugger isn't the only adversary that Kyle is facing, as he turns to see the queen alien booming over him. The matronly menace tail whips Kyle into the wall, nearly breaking his arm. But Kyle has had enough of the xenomorph and blasts away at the oncoming aliens. After thinning out the herd, Kyle places a protective bubble over the survivors and goes to talk to the vivisected crow. Kyle asks why he, she didn't tell him that he was getting uncomfortable bulges in his uniform for an android, and Crow replies that it wouldn't have made any difference. Slowly fading, she tells Kyle that he needs to wipe the aliens out, but Kyle still clings to the ideal of settling this non-lethally. With her dying breath, Crow asks Kyle if he wants to leave the same problem that Hal made for his successor, and Kyle makes the decision. Channeling the Emerald Energy, Kyle recites the oath of the Green Lantern Corps and explodes the energy outward, destroying all of the enemies while protecting the survivors. Crisis averted. Kyle chats with the surviving former Lanterns, Tomar Dur and Madonna. Seriously, if you look at the way it's spelled and read it, it's Madonna. And wonders if what he did was right. All he knows is that the past comes back to haunt you, no matter what you do. And, yeah, I was kind of down on this ending. Uh, the story overall was a really good story, but this ending was just kind of wishy-washy and just didn't feel right yeah it was a little perfunctory you know just kind of uh the run through the gauntlet and then just kill them all off kind mm -hmm. of thing you know and, and although I, I will say though if if you had told me oh you know uh the kyle the kyle rayner green lantern fights the aliens with a robot named crow <laughs> that brings on a whole other comic that didn't happen here yes uh, i i know <laughs> I know that Thomas DJ and I think even Hair Metal Hero kind of made mention that it would have been so awesome if it truly had been Crow from Mystery <laughs> Science Theater fighting alongside Kyle. And I could, just, I could just see that they're getting ready for their big run. I want to decide who lives and who dies. <laughs> oh, I don't know. 
<laughs> oh, Tibby, my Tibby. <laughs> and they could have brought, they could have even brought in, uh, oh, what's his name? Timmy, the, uh, the black crow. Yes. One episode. They could have done that. The evil away. crow. Oh my God. Joel Hodgson yelling, get away from her, you bitch. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but, you know, it, overall, it was really good. I think the art was really superlative in this. Um, yeah. Uh, the, they got both the characters of uh, Kyle and the aliens down really well. Uh, a lot of the aliens just uh, look incredibly impressive in this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially the first couple of pages when we see the uh, xenomorphs uh, setting the eggs. Mm-hmm. And then we see the queen looking over them. The the only thing, and this might just might just be the way that she is is um, she only has one set of arms that I can see inside the book. On the cover, she has her two sets of arms. Mm-hmm. But it may just, because you see, like, on page, I think it's page three, she's got the ovipositor, because that's a word you like to hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the egg sac, and again. Uh, but she's, <laughs> she's only got one set of arms. It's, it's a real minor nitpick. Most people aren't going to notice that. Well, and you, know? you can also attribute it to the fact that They've sort of established in the aliens mythos that the aliens come out looking similar to what they, uh, right. you know, latched onto. So, so it could be this one only has two arms. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. it's a different it's a different look. But yeah, like I said, from the cover to the interior art, the aliens look really good. Uh, I love the sort of icky. They they got the icky feel of the sort of mucusy thing that that. Pardon me. That the aliens type to you know tend to secrete you know especially in that first page where Kyle is trying to pull his ring toward him and it's still stuck in the alien splooge. So I I, I love that. Yeah, yeah, and the and the face huggers and all, and like everything, all the aliens stuff, all the licensed stuff looks really good. I really like this. This almost looks kind of like um, some of the aliens minis that Dark Horse did all through the '90s and stuff. Mm-hmm. I would have bought that, uh, you know, this as a as an aliens book until Green Lantern shows up three pages into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we commented on before the the backgrounds, the look of the aliens, the look of the face huggers, they're all spot on, and Leonardi does a really good job. Like I said, I think I said in a couple of episodes before, Leonardi I think is best known for drawing Spider Man twenty ninety nine, and I think he fits here really well with uh with Kyle. And his look as well. It's a, yeah. it's a very dynamic type look, and it's not it's not as nineties as it could be. And also, I want to talk about uh, Ron Mars. He, I think, this is I think one of the final things that he's probably written uh, for Green Lantern until he comes back later to uh, write him at the end of the Green Lantern run in the uh, mid two thousands before uh, uh, Jeff Johns would take over to do Rebirth. And he does have a little bit of change. Kyle gets a lit, little bit more under his best snarky things. Uh, like uh, when he kisses Crow, you know, he gives that little uh, comment on that fourth panel there. This, please don't shoot me. Yeah. And, just... I, and, I, and I like that it's specifically Sado Voce. It's mm-hmm. written in the, it's not written all in caps. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, and the penciler, you know, Steve Ditko. <laughs> you know, pencil it. So maybe it was Steve Ditko under a pseudonym, and he's penciling yeah. it a little differently to make it look like he's uh, not speaking it, you know, with such, uh, you know, with such emphasis. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I'm, I think I said I, Kyle really rings true in this. There's not a lot of character bits here, but his big call, his big decision at the end, and all that, I can buy it from Kyle, especially given 
you know, from listening to just one of the guys, all the crap that Kyle Rayner has gone through since he got the ring, mm-hmm. that being then being put in this situation with the Xenomorphs, I can buy his decision. And it makes sense, and I and and it doesn't seem out of character or anything to me. It's like, yeah, given that, yeah, I can totally see why he's doing that. So I'm on board with it. Well, one, one I'm sorry, ahead. one other thing about the art, just that stuck, and this is an odd thing that popped in my head when I was reading it. There's a couple of scenes early on where if you took Crow and gave her black hair instead of blonde hair and maybe chopped off her ponytail, she looks a bit like Rachel from Blade Runner. She's got, like, her eyes and her nose looks kind of like Sean Young. And I don't know if that's intentional because, you know, Rachel... Okay, spoilers for Blade Runner. Rachel's a replicant, Mm -hmm. and then Crow ends up being an android. Yeah, I'm looking. So I don't know if that's intentional or if I'm reading too much into it or what. It could be because I'm looking at the, I don't know what page it is. Uh, it may be page six. It's a six panel page where that, uh, you know, they're discussing the plan of going down yeah. there. That, uh, fourth panel there where you see just her hair. If you kind of darken that up, yeah, you could see a little bit of Sean Young in there. Yeah. It's just like the, the rounded chin, you know, the way her eyes are set. She looks to me looks like a blonde Rachel. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like, it, Given the the nature of those two characters, you know, and especially considering the you know the idea of uh, the way androids are presented in in specifically aliens, you know, the way that Bishop is in Aliens about you know being a character that even though he's artificial, you know, is a is a heroic character who makes sacrifices for the for the the human characters, mm-hmm. you know, and then Rachel who is a replicant who believes herself to be human, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just an odd, again it's just an odd connection to make when I was reading it as I, I couldn't I couldn't tell if it was close enough to be on purpose or if it was just close enough for me to read into it. Well, I don't know. I I, I wouldn't be surprised if Leonardo may have taken some uh, you know facial designs from from that as well. But you know that's a good catch. I I, I you know now looking at it I can't kind of see that and it does make it does make sense there. Um, I don't really have any specific notes except when we get to the splash page with Kyle and the queen alien. That's gorgeous. That, I mean, the background's a little subdued, just the sort of orange bleeding into the yellow, but both, well, Kyle's got kind of silly hair. I'll give him that. But you know, the queen alien looks amazing. Yeah. She looks, she looks great. Really get the sense of scale. Mm -hmm. And, and I like that there's a little bit of the same kind of design aesthetic, like from the film with, her legs always being bent. She never, you never see her standing fully tall, and she still towers over Kyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like on the page previous to that when Kyle is fighting off the face hugger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I think page ten, panel five. Yeah. When he rings up all the hands to grab the face hugger's many limbs and tail. Yeah, well, because in that earlier panel, the the face hugger's pretty much latched onto him, and yeah, you know the fact that he's able to get to his ring and use that to to pull the thing off him is pretty impressive. I mean, you've got to assume you have to get that many hands because you've got not only the the crab legs wrapping around your head, but you've got that sort of prehensile tail, you know, throttling you at the same time. So you've got to use more than just your own hands to get that off. So him ringing up the numerous constructs of hands really works there. Yeah. Then, then, uh, you know, the the queen has her way with him. I like the use of the shield with the inner mouth. I thought that was nice. Mm Mm-hmm. But then he uh, he breaks out a gun construct and blasts away at her. Uh, in in some in several aliens uh, books, these are guys are called uh, the Royal Guard or the Praetorians. They have various names. 
basically the, the larger warriors that guard and serve the queen. He blasts away at them, but he's not sprayed down with acid blood. Mm-hmm. And that, that is like, well, you know, Kyle should be in a bit of trouble here. He should be like, uh, uh, like Drake, you know, in the, uh, when, when he gets sprayed with the acid when they're trying to retreat back onto the dropship. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a thing that I didn't really, that didn't really click with me. You know, if he had had the sort of green aura exactly. around him yes. protecting him, that wouldn't be much of an issue. But since it's just basically him using the ring to bring up the construct of the gun, it, it 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 doesn't make sense. Yes, there should be backsplash, and he should be getting hit because See that yeah. Prior prior in the in the series, uh, different uh, members of the core got hit with uh, alien blood, and it right, exactly. sprayed them as well. So yeah, uh, that is a minor. My major nitpick with that is Kyle's all good and well with you know blowing away these these Praetorian guards, these royal guard aliens, you know, without any compunction. But then when it comes to, you know, wiping out the queen and everyone else, he's like, oh, I can't do that. I'm not a killer. So that kind of diminishes the story. His his wishy-washiness at the end of this, you know, yeah. does It's, it's almost as if the idea was like, well, you know, when I'm being attacked, I'll defend myself because, I mean, they're out to get him right here, you know, and he's, you know, they're, they're massing to attack. Whereas they're not, it's not like they're helpless or they're innocent. But he's in his ring bubble when he goes and sees Crow, and he could leave. Mm-hmm. You know, he could leave and and leave them the way they are. But you know, it's like uh, I can't. You know that that, that therein lies the choice. I, I understand what you're saying about the wishy washiness, but I like that he actually goes through with it. Mm-hmm. And because think- you know, it's one of those things with uh, you know what the, one of the major differences, like you know, between like the aliens, the xenomorphs, and the predators. Is that you can reason with a predator if you can communicate with them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can earn their respect, they'll leave you alone. But a xenomorph's net, that's, there's, there's, you can't reason with them. It's an alien, it's a truly alien intellect. You know, all they care about is, you know, uh, feed, feed and breed, basically, you know? Yep. Uh, eat, eat, consume, and then make more. And, and it's like, they're never going to be able to stop that. So again, it's a guy that Kyle, who's had, the whole world dumped on him for the last couple of years, and now this particular story, it's like, well, I've got, you know, this is going to be, it's like the end of it, you know? It's like, I don't want to do this when I'm 70, so let's, mm-hmm. let's take care of the problem now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, I think I think the thing is that we as readers know, we understand the aliens, that there are more of them out there than just this. It's not like he's wiping out a specific individual. He's, it's not like he's wiping out the entirety of the race. He's just wiping out this one infection. This is like basically fumigating your house for insects, essentially. Yeah. And that's kind of the way that I view it. And, you know, that's why I was kind of irked with the first issue. I mean, when Hal brought them to Mogo and just let them loose here, that was Hal trying to be altruistic. But knowing what we knew about the aliens, it was a very foolish move because... Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, when the aliens are left to their own devices, they're going to mess something up eventually. But, but you know, I do like the fact that Kyle says the oath. Yeah. I think this is only, in my recollection of the books, I think it's the only the second time he's actually used the oath. The first time being around issue 100, where Hal Jordan came back and... Uh, you know, came back through time or Cal came back from the future and the Legion right. sent him back a little too far in the past and he teamed up with Hal and then he got sent forward in the future again and all this stuff. So, yeah, uh, it's nice to see him, you know, and 
the oath is is classic. I think the oath is one of those classic things you like to see in the book. And mm-hmm. having Kyle say it on these occasions is is kind of a nice touch of to the book. So I like it. Yeah. I two other little things. I like that Crow is bleeding out the white fluid that the androids mm-hmm. have inside them for some inexplicable reason in the aliens films. I like that a lot. And um, so I thought that whole sequence of, of her bleeding out, for lack of a better term, was very well cut together and well paced. Um, and again, this just, I think this speaks more about me necessarily than, than the creators of this comic. But when Kyle's about to unload on the mass of warriors and he goes, feeding time's over, don't say I didn't warn you. The first thing that popped into my head, and maybe it's because I've been watching some retrospectives on this because it's the 25th anniversary, was Michael Keaton in Tim Burton's Batman going, you want to get nuts? Come on! Let's get nuts! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. I love that scene, by the way. That's classic. Oh, yeah. There's more character right there from Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne than all of the, um, you know, Christian the Nolan, Bales. Christian Bale's Batman films mm-hmm. put together in that one scene. The whole thing with him talking to the Joker. But that, we're not a bat, you're not a Batman podcast. Yeah. Well, and, and sadly, <laughs> we're not going to rehash the, the, the grievances or the, the appreciation <laughs> that we have for the Nolan films. So we'll just leave mm-hmm. that there. Um, it, it is disappointing at the end, even though that we don't see a body that supposedly most of the uh, the lanterns are now dead. I mean, yeah. Brick and Ash were two characters that appeared in uh, the Green Lantern Corps quarterlies that uh, ran prior to or prior to Emerald Dawn, not Emerald Dawn, but Emerald Twilight. So they were characters that were just kind of established there. Uh, the Zudarian, the Fishhead alien, uh, Tomar, yep. is. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if he's ever brought up again, but Tomar Ray eventually comes back. And I'm pretty certain that I, well, I know Salak has also come back. And since yeah. you don't see his body, you know, there's obviously, you could put this if you had to into Green Lantern continuity. Right. Even, but, even though, you know, obviously it's it's an alternate or an Elseworlds or yeah. type story. And I think it works best that way. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, to me, if you, yeah, you could you can massage it into Green Lantern continuity, but introducing the Xenomorphs to the DCU this creates so many problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? well, especially because it's supposed to be you know the majority of the Alien story is supposed to be set in the future and like the the late to mid twenty first century. Right. So you know it it doesn't work in the current timeline. You know maybe if you know Dan DeDio's uh, you know second. It's a five year timeline. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not going to work. <laughs> and you know what? I love the five year time. No, I don't love the five year time. Yeah. But I do like Dan DeDio. He's a good guy. I've met him a couple of times. You know, I don't have anything. You know, <laughs> he's running in the company in the way that he wants to. Uh, you know, if people are enjoying the books, you know, then then who am I to complain? Well, you know, I, thing- I, I'm I'm kind of over, I guess I'm kind of over my complaining about you know comics. I, I'm looking for the stuff that I enjoy and. You know, if people are enjoying the new 52, I'm happy for it. Yeah. Well, part of it also, I think, is that the Dio, by his by his position, puts himself out there to be the face of it. Mm-hmm. And and if you and and this, you know, this is not anything scientific, but if you if you read interviews with him or watch panels with him and stuff, he deflects criticism from um, his editors, from Jeff Johns, from Jim Lee, from others at DC, other higher ups at DC entertainment and puts it on himself. Mm-hmm. And he, and he makes himself the target, I think on purpose, 
because, mm-hmm. you know, DiDio, he doesn't, I mean, the books he writes, he doesn't write bestsellers. He writes the oddball books that he wants to write. So, you know, they're, so yep. it's not, it's not going to kill anything if, you know, somebody said, well, I'm not going to read, um, OMAC, yeah. or Outsiders, oh. because Dan DiDio's writing. You know, it's, the book's a long shot already. Well, and I, I admire Dan DiDio for, uh, for being that, that sort of focal point, that sort of target for the, the the nerd rage that people may have against DC. I, I I'm glad that he's taking that. You know, it's it is a difficult thing because you know comic book fans get you know how irritating <laughs> we all been there. <laughs> yes, we we unfortunately have. But uh, uh, you know, going to the the final panel, you know the Hal in the background. You know, yeah. Thanks, Hal. Yeah. You, you're the guy who. You're the guy who started all this, but yet you get the uh, silhouette, you know, <laughs> hovering over me in the background. No, you're a jerk. This is your fault, Hal. Yeah. The original script had Kyle actually talking to Spectral Hal and Spectral Hal saying, you see, what I did was right from a certain point of view. <laughs> and then Kyle's like, from a certain point of view? What the hell is that mean? <laughs> Shut up, obi Next thing you're going to tell me, Jenny Lynn Hayden's my sister. I don't know. <laughs> Oh God, I haven't read Judd Winnick's issues. That better not be in there. No, no. Uh, but aside aside from a kind of you know mad ending, I enjoyed the Green Lantern versus Alien. Yeah, I thought, I thought it, it was it was fun in a kind of an offbeat, kind of off kilter kind of way. It's not two properties I would put together. Like when I found the Green Lantern Silver Surfer crossover. Mm-hmm. For, I think Ron Lim did the art on that one. Yes. And uh, was that Ron Mars? Ron wrote Mars that? wrote it. Yeah. Ron Lim. It was the Ron the, and Ron connection. It was back uh, to the, the actual Silver Surfer, you know, that yeah. they were working together on that. I mean, when, when you see that, that one's like, it's a head slapper. It's like, of course, Green Lantern and the Silver Surfer, mm-hmm. you know? And but that was a but, brilliant, uh, their their foes were also brilliant. You know, you had Thanos and, uh, uh, you know, Parallax. Yeah. And that, that worked perfectly well together. You know, exactly. two sort of despots who wanted... You know, ultimate control over the universe. It was great. But when you say Green Lantern and Aliens, it's like, mm, that seems a little odd. But they're both science fiction properties. Green Lantern, of all the traditional DC properties that are still around today, deals the most with aliens, you know, mm-hmm. on, a, on a regular basis. Uh, it, it makes it, Green Lantern has fought other aggressive alien races like that before. You know, the, the, I'm thinking like the Dominators or, uh, you know, there's a few. I'm, I'm now I'm blanking, of course, but the Dominators are a good one, right? Yeah, the Dominators. Right now, I'm. Uh, I know they're t- they're fighting against the Durlins. They fought Durlins. against the uh, the Coons, uh, the Daxamites as well. Yeah. So so yeah, being an intergalactic uh, police force, them having to deal with aliens isn't out of the question. So yeah, it, it works. I, it actually works in a lot of the ways that uh, better than I think some of the other uh, DC aliens crossovers did. The right. DC. The, like the Batman versus Alien crossovers, that it was interesting, but I, I think it was I think it was better because it may, it was more tense because the Superman versus Aliens one you had to do the sort of same thing that they did in this you had to depower the hero because right. you get Superman at full strength taking on the aliens that's nothing yeah <laughs> you know he just sits in there and lets them come bite on him and 
you know, spill blood on him. It's like, huh, no, that that's really nice heat vision. Oh, I'm sorry, you're all gone. <laughs> yeah, Superman would use their acid bullet as an exfoliant, I think. So mm-hmm. he'd be like, ooh, I'm, this is a nice herbal scrub. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Lois will love this when I go. <laughs> but the but you know that's kind of what they had to do. And you know, uh, I will admit, I also read the Superman versus Aliens, but I think I read one of the Batman versus Aliens because they had a couple of them. And I, I I think I enjoyed the Green Lantern and the Superman one better than the Bat. Yeah. So. Well, I, I liked this one. Like I said, it was it was offbeat. wasn't been the first thing that I would have thought of as a crossover, but it works. Mm-hmm. And the end, like I said, the ending's kind of pat, but the story itself's a lot of fun. There's a lot of good action, and the art is great all throughout. I think. Oh yeah, I, especially I, like I said, the the licensed art for the aliens. The aliens look great throughout mm-hmm. this entire book, and. So I'm, like I said, I, I was real happy with this. I was, I hadn't read this, so when you uh, put the call out, I was like, "Oh, that sounds neat. I'll give that a shot." Well, I was glad that I was able to tap uh, the guys from the Horror Vault show. I was thinking, how am I ever going to get, you know, Chris and Hero on the show? Because I know yeah. Hero, Hero mentioned that he wasn't too into Green Lantern, or at least Kyle at the time. He thought, you know, he said he hated the '90s costume. But even he had to enjoy this issue. You know, if you listen to him last episode, you know, he was really fond of the Green Lantern versus Aliens issue. So it was fun. Luke, I always love it when I get to have you on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Like I do all the time. Why don't I go ahead and let you tell people what you're doing out there on the Internet and where people can find you? All right. Well, as you said at the top of the show, I am the host of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, which is a Daikaiju podcast. Daikaiju is uh, Japanese giant monsters. And so we cover Japanese giant monsters, films, TV shows, comics, toys, games, culture, anything that comes up involving giant monsters, we'll probably talk about it. I've got a new episode of that uh, just about every month. I try. <laughs> I try. I don't always make it. Uh, and as Sean also mentioned, I'm one of the co-hosts over on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. Uh, which is the resident horror show podcast at the Two True Freaks Network. Our Destruction Directive is is also on Two True Freaks, and uh, we we've we just finished up not too long ago our Italian horror series, and we've got some new stuff coming up on the horizon that uh, hopefully uh, will be uh, of you know spookily enjoyable for our our listening audience. Mm-hmm. I'm looking and, forward to it. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. Now, I don't know if we spoiled it in the last episode, but we did. But yeah, the what we're going to be covering, I'm yeah, Jones in for it. <laughs> Boy, and, yeah. And you can also uh, find me occasionally on my Hawkman blog, Being Carter Hall, which is at beingcarterhall.blogspot.com. I'm currently reading the Hawkworld ongoing series, and it is it, it is good stuff. So hopefully, I have a bit more on there about that than a little more frequent. But you know how you can tell a blogger is lying; his lips are moving. <laughs> Well, Luke, again, thank you for coming on the show. It's always great to talk to you. We'll get to we'll get to talk together when we do another vault show. I can't wait for that. I've and, got to get you on the Earth Destruction Directive at some point. Oh, that'd be cool. You know, maybe we can. Maybe if you do, I don't know if you've gotten in touch with uh, Lomax recently about doing a, a an Ultraman episode. But if you want to talk about some of those or do commentaries for those, I'd love to do that because, like I said, you uh, you actually gave me the first season or the first couple of seasons of the Ultraman uh, Ultra Q series. And I've been watching through that, so I'd love to go uh, do a little discussion about some of those episodes. That'd be good. That sounds like fun to me. Okay, well, thanks again, Luke, for coming on, and thank you, folks, for downloading and listening. Be sure to come back next time for another episode of Just One of the Guys. We'll see you in seven days, folks. Bye, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. 
All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeBonsecore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening song for today's show is Rush's The Body Electric, off their album Grace Under Pressure from 1984. If you'd like to buy this Rush album or buy this song, I commend you because you've made a good and wise choice in musical music. But of course, Rush isn't the only thing that you could buy album-wise. There's tons of other bands out there, and the best way to get music is in my personal opinion, is to go through Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com would be using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the banner in the homepage, you'll be transported to Amazon where you can buy music from Rush, Triumph, Bachman Turner Overdrive, The Bare Naked Ladies, and even, if you really hated yourself, Nickelback. And all these can be bought for ridiculously pro- low prices on Amazon. And all, as always, when you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price that you make at Amazon.com, hopefully not buying Nickelback songs, would go back to the website to help pay for podcasts like this one coming out on a regular basis. So anytime you feel like downloading music, buying songs, buying movies, or buying pretty much anything that the modern geek could love, Go to Amazon.com through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. I like your new icon. Is that your new dad face? <laughs> uh, that's, uh, <laughs> we were, we were recording the Who True Freaks thing this morning and Bill brought up, you know, you know, Peter Capaldi and having grumpy eyes and he said something about that. So he mentioned, you know, I should be the uh, grumpy cat. So I changed my uh, icon to that. <laughs> There's a couple of really good, uh, fan sub outfits. Okay. That they'll put them out either direct download or torrent. And um, let me send you a link right here. This is one I like, and they're usually pretty pretty good. And uh, they do this current Super Sentai, the current Common Rider, the current Ultraman. There's a series called Garo that they do, and a couple others. Hmm. And actually, if you look right there, and that the second, the first post is the current Raw, is because the shows air on Sunday morning in Japan. Mm-hmm. So there's the Raws of all the current shows. And then uh, I love the, the second post there of Express Sentai Tokuga, number 24. Let's see. Let's...
Yes. <laughs> wow. And this is a kid's show? Yes. She, she, her name is, uh, her name is Wagon. And, uh, the Tokuga is, um, uh, Tokuga is a play on Tokyo, which is, uh, a bullet, which is a, like a, a, a bullet train. Mm-hmm. And so there, it's a train theme Sentai. And instead of having one home base, they're always on their trains that are constantly traveling around. Well, wagon is, she, she pushes the, the food service wagon. That's why she's got the wagon handles on her helmet there. But every time they look in on her, she's like taking selfies of herself, like posed or like laying down the seat with her tush in the air and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and their, their mentor is named Conductor and he has a <laughs> monkey puppet that is on his hand that talks. Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty crazy, like I said. But it's, but it's, but it's, you know, it's, it's good. It's fun. It's about the power of imagination. <laughs> egg tube scrambles? A vertical egg cooker. What is this, Japan? They do have the square watermelons in Japan. No, Sean's gotta go check on his kids and he's gonna be right back.